0: Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 this morning, which is part of a larger section, verses 15 through 20. I I'd originally planned to get through verses, through verse 20, that uh, is not going to happen unless we want to sit here for roughly an hour and a half or so, which I trust we're going to be hungry by then. So we'll just look at verses 15 through 17, and before we do so, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have this passage before us which makes much of Jesus Christ your Son. As we live in a world and even in a church setting which often views Christ as sort of an outlier, someone to tack on to our lives, we ask that we would come to a greater knowledge of who He is, that indeed He might be the King and the Lord of our lives that we might view him as the one who reigns over the entire universe. And so pay due homage and worship to him. And so work in each of us by your Holy Spirit, that we would come to see your son as he really is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1 at verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thus for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, there was in Colossa what is referred to as a Colossian heresy. It's a, a bit of an interesting thing. Nobody really knows exactly what it was, but it was Uh, a little bit of uh, Greek philosophy mixed with Jewish legalism and Gnosticism. Uh, And the gist of what we could describe, and we'll get more into the details in chapter two, was it diminished Jesus Christ. It reduced him to a mere addition to our lives, to someone who is useful in our spiritual growth and coming to God. But everything isn't in him. We need Jesus plus some super spiritual knowledge, or we need Jesus plus some rigorous asceticism to grow in Christ and to come to a greater knowledge of God. And so in the face of teaching, which was diminishing the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul spends time exalting him through the heavens, which is something we're probably familiar with. If you're standing in a group of people and you hear them say some negative things about your best friend, things which aren't true, things which you know to be false and to be lies... When they're done, you would naturally want to do what? Speak up, right? (laughs) Hey, actually, I know this person. They're my best friend. Let me tell you about their character. And let me tell you about who they are and what really makes them tick so that you can come to know the truth about them. Well, in a much bigger way, when Jesus Christ is being diminished, Paul, (laughs) the Holy Spirit, spends a lot of time exalting him, putting him in his rightful spot so that the Colossian believers and everyone who's read this letter all the way down to our day Can know exactly who he is and know the exalted rather than the diminished Jesus Christ. So I want to highlight who Jesus is. And before we do, just a a bit of an exegetical thing. Someone's noticed, many people have pointed this out, that in verses 17 to 18, or verses 15, sorry, to 17, Jesus Christ is depicted as the head of creation, the preeminent one in all of creation. And then in verses 18 through 20, he's depicted as the preeminent one of the new creation, the church. And so this morning, we're going to confine ourselves to Jesus Christ as preeminent or the head of his creation in verses 15 through 17. And I want us to see just four things that Jesus Christ is God made visible. He is preeminent over creation. He's eternal and he is the sustainer of all creation. Just those four things. We're going to begin with Jesus Christ as God made visible, verses 15, and then throwing verse 19 in there as well. He's the image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the word image brings us back to Genesis 1, 27, where we are told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Adam was the representative of God in the world. And if you wandered all over creation on the seventh day of creation, after everything was made and it was all good, before the fall into sin, you would learn a lot about God. You could learn of his majesty by just looking up at the stars. You could learn about his wisdom by looking at the intricacies of creation and how everything just naturally worked. But if you wandered all over creation with the question, what is God like? I want to see in creation what God is like. I want a visible representation of who God is. Who is this God? The closest thing you would find in all creation would be Adam and Eve. They were the closest thing that you could uh, look at to discover what God is like. They portrayed God as relational, able to relate to people. Adam and Eve portrayed God as loving by the way they loved each other. Remember, this is before the fall into sin. They showed God's justice in their love of right and their hatred of wrong. They showed God's wisdom in that they used right information with their minds to process how to live well in the world. But then they fell into sin, and the image of God in them and in every human being since is by nature twisted. The image isn't perfect anymore. And the limited image which they portrayed of God, His image and His likeness, was now stained by sin. But when God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, in the world, He again made Himself visible, as it were, in perfect form. Verse 15, He's the image of the invisible God. And in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Christ, who is the image of God. And Jesus... When Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father in John 14, 9, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But what stands out about this is this. Jesus isn't just an image of God. He's the image of God. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus himself attested to the fact that he's God in the flesh. John 10.33, the Jews said to Jesus, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. For all the hardness of their hearts, the Jews understood something about Jesus. He is saying he is God. He is God in the flesh. God, the second person of the Trinity, is wearing skin. And that's what Paul is telling us. He's the image of the invisible God. Now this is important for the Colossians and for us. There was a heresy which emerged later on in the second century of the church which may have been infecting the Colossians called Gnosticism, which teaches that creation and matter is evil and the spiritual realm is where true life is found. And the way to attain true spiritual life is by a super spiritual knowledge or gnosis, Gnosticism, which rises above this world and taps into the invisible God and has this fellowship with God, which is only possible if you have this true life by prayer, by meditation, by super knowledge. That's where true life is found. Something beyond this world. But what this passage tells us is that true knowledge and a true relationship with God is not found in some super spiritual knowledge. It's actually found in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means if we want to know what God is like, we need look no farther than Jesus. That is a mouthful, beloved. If we want to know God as he truly is in his attributes, in his character, we need look no farther than Jesus Christ himself. All the fullness of God dwelled in him, dwells in him. So the second thing I want us to look at is that Jesus Christ is preeminent over creation. Verses 15b, the latter part of it, into verse 16. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Or to use the language of the Gospel of John, John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything in all creation, the whole universe, was made through Jesus Christ. Now the language of firstborn, he's the firstborn of all creation. The language of firstborn can mean one who's born first. Scripture does use the language that way. It can also mean one who is preeminent or most important or reigns or rules over. And if you would flip back to Psalm 89, verse 27, as an example of this, you'd see that the Lord, speaking of King David, said, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, the Lord's not saying I'm going to reverse the order of the birth of the sons of Jesse. I'm going to make David the firstborn, even though he wasn't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to make him the firstborn of the kings of the earth. I'm going to exalt him and make him chief among them. So if Colossians 1.15b were the only verse we had in the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ, we might be able to amass the doctrine of Jesus Christ being the first created being. If it were the only verse in the Bible, but it's not. And what the rest of Colossians, the passage, verses 15 through 17, go on to tell us is that Jesus couldn't be a created being because he's actually the creator. Colossians 1.16, for by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And in that passage we just read from John 1.3, we're told all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So far from being a created being, far from being even the first created being, who's the most important in all creation, this passage tells us that Jesus is the creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the universe. A triune work, and Jesus Christ is involved in it. Now, just as a bit of a historical side note, in the 4th century AD, there was a heresy promoted by a guy by the name of Arius. He was a pastor, a pastor who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he believed and taught that Jesus Christ was begotten by the Father before creation, but he was not eternally begotten. And the phrase which depicted his theology was, there was a time when Jesus was not. In other words, he's not eternally begotten. There was a time when God the Father brought into existence Jesus Christ, the Son. And his teaching was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and then at the next council, the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D., The Nicene Creed, as we say it now, was fully developed and was uh, confessed by the church. And here's the language of the Nicene Creed, which hits on this notion of Jesus Christ being eternally uh, God. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is a theological statement, which is a clear boundary regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. He always has been. There was never a time when he was not. Indeed, he's the eternally begotten Son of God. And if you want a modern-day version of Arianism, you can go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they take Colossians 1.15 to mean that Jesus is a created being, the most important, but they believe that Jesus is inferior to the Father, and so not equal with God, which is just simply a lie. Again, if Colossians 1.15b was the only passage or verse we had on the Lord Jesus, that would possibly be a doctrine, but it's not even close. And so as we compare it to the rest of Scripture, we know very clearly, and the church has stood firmly on this, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, who has no beginning. Now back to the passage, verse 16, "...for by Him all things were created." in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This just covers everything in all creation, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now there's three prepositions used here to describe Jesus' relationship with creation. In him, or the ESV translated by him, but a better translation might be, in him, all things were created. And in him simply has to do with Nothing was created apart from Him. Everything was created in Jesus or in conjunction with Jesus. And then look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through Him so that creation was made through Jesus Christ, made through His work or by means of Him. And then all creation, the end of verse 16, all things were created for Him, which means the creation was made for the glory of and for the use of the Lord Jesus Christ. Creation was made in him, through him, and for him. This is an astonishing claim about the Lord Jesus Christ. And one theologian pastor, in order to illustrate this, used the building of a large building. And he said, if you're going to build a large building, you start with an architect The whole building is made in that architect. The architects and the engineers work together to design the building, to figure out what the use of the building is gonna be in conjunction with the owner, and the whole building is made in the architect. And then once the design of the building is solidified, bids are thrown out, bids are solicited, so that builders can be acquired to actually build the building, and the building is made through the builders. You can have the architects have a building that's ready to be made in them if there's no builders, it won't happen. So the building's made through the builders and the building's ultimately made for the owner, right? for the purpose of, for the glory of, for the good of the owner. And if you look at all of creation, what we're being told here is that the whole creation was made in Jesus Christ. He's the architect, God the Father, God the Son, God the Lord, they're the architects of creation. Jesus Christ is the designer of creation. What's this going to look like? What are the stars going to be? How are plants going to go in the orbit? What's the earth's orbit going to look like? How close will it be to the sun? All the details of creation. He's the architect of creation. But also creation is made through him. He's the builder of creation. He's the one who pulls this off. And then the creation is also made for him. It's for his glory. Are you hearing the notes of, the unquestionable notes of, the theological megaphone yelling of the Apostle Paul saying, Jesus is God. You can't have a being this immense, forming, making, creation by his own instrumentality for his own glory. You can't have a being like that without him being God. That's exactly the message Paul's proclaiming in this verse. Creation was made in him, it was made through him, and it was made for him. Now, what in creation? All the stars, everything on the earth, (laughs) the whole universe, everything visible and invisible. Jesus Christ has made it all. And if you want to have your head spin a little bit regarding the magnificent wisdom of Jesus Christ in the Creation, here's what one unbeliever, Carl Sagan, in his book, The Dragons of Eden, mentioned about the complexity of one human chromosome. A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. How much information is 20 billion bits? Well, if it were written down in an ordinary printed book in modern human language, 20 billion bits are the equivalent of about 3 billion letters. If there are approximately six letters in an average word, the information content of a human chromosome corresponds to about 500 million words. If there are about 300 words on an ordinary page of printed type, this corresponds to about 2 million pages. And if a typical book contains 500 such pages, the information content of a single human chromosome corresponds to 4,000 volumes, 4,000 books. It's clear then that the chromosome contains an enormous library of information. It's equally clear that so rich a library is required to specify as exquisitely constructed and intricately functioning object as a human being. This is just one small little piece of information that we could go to in all of creation to just marvel at the complexity of creation, but more than that, the one who made it. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one we confess as Savior and Lord. He made this. We're just discovering things which he embedded in creation. And we've only discovered just the smallest little bit. Now, the world in which we live denies that God the Father and the Son created the world. They're not going to say, yeah, Jesus is creator. In fact, if I told you that the Des Moines Register Capitol building just came into existence out of nowhere with no engineers or builders. If you went out into the world with that message, people would say, you're crazy. The Des Moines Capitol building did not just emerge out of the ground um, willy-nilly with no human instrument. If I told you that this human book, this hymn book that we sing out of, right, if I told you that just emerged, it just ended up as a PDF file in some publisher's desktop ready for printing you would all say, well, Zach, that's crazy. You need to go get your brain checked, your mind checked. But if someone came up with a teaching that said the planets are in their orbits and the earth is 92 million miles away from the sun, which is the perfect distance for warmth and plant growth, and this just happened randomly through natural selection and survival of the fittest, people applaud. They say, write it down in books and teach it to our kids. And when someone says that cells and molecules and atoms, which are held together by an intricate combination of membranes and attractions and which are the building block of the entire universe, when someone says these intricate things are the result of natural selection and evolutionary processes, people applaud it, people eat it up. And when someone says human beings are nothing more than the result of evolutionary processes, to use the language of George Gaylord Simpson, man is the result of a purposeless and materialistic process that did not have him in mind. He was not planned. He is a state of matter, a form of life, a sort of animal, and a species of the order primates akin nearly or remotely to all of life and indeed to all that is material. People say write it up, print books about it, teach it to everyone. Now we know books and buildings can't just randomly appear. It doesn't take much of a follow-through thought to figure out that the creation can't just randomly appear. And we know this. And we're told in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the one who created it. Jesus is a very significant being. Beloved Jesus, we're told here, is the creator. We're also told, thirdly, that he's eternal. Verse 17a, he is before all things. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Before creation ever came, there's Jesus with the Father in the beginning. He is eternal. There was an incident in Jesus' life which really highlighted this. When his claims to be eternal were so poignant, it actually created a very dramatic response in his hearers. He was teaching at the temple, and the Jews were challenging him regarding their relationship with Abraham. They were claiming Abraham as their father and thus claiming to have eternal life because they were biologically related to Abraham. And near the end of this challenge, Jesus said this in John eight fifty six your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now that makes Jesus really old. You were alive in Abraham's day so that he could see your day, he could see you and he was glad. You made Abraham smile. What? How old do you think you are? And they caught it. And in John 8.57, they said, You're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? They're, they caught what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus said in John 8.58, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus doesn't just say, Yeah, Abraham saw my day. I was actually alive before Abraham was. And then he throws out, I am. I'm Jehovah, I'm eternal, I'm the covenant Lord. And what the Jews figured out, because they picked up stones to throw at him, is Jesus was not just claiming to be a pretty significant figure. He was claiming to be eternal. He was claiming to be God, one who has had no beginning. Beloved, he's before all things. That is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And then finally, he's the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17b, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything holds together through Jesus Christ. Douglas Moo put it this way, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work and the planets would not stay in their orbits. So think about that for a moment. Atoms would fall apart. That's called nuclear fission, We've seen it. Fat boy, little man, right? Hiroshima, Nagasaki, atomic bombs. You divide atoms and what happens? Massive amounts of energy. And it ends up in a chain reaction. And we've seen nuclear fission combined with a little bit of fusion in the Tsar Bomba, which was 3,000 times bigger than those nuclear bombs. Russia lit it off. And it was just this massive explosion. These bombs involved the splitting Of atoms, and this passage tells us that in Jesus Christ everything holds together, including atoms. What kind of power does it take to hold together every atom of the universe? We see what happens when those atoms come apart. It's like nothing the world has ever seen before. What kind of power, what kind of force does it take to hold every atom in the known universe together? an incredible infinite power like we've never seen, such that if you removed it, what would take place? The whole universe would dismantle. Gravity would stop. The earth would disintegrate because nothing's being held into it. We would disintegrate. There would be no more planets in their orbit. This passage teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. It's always fascinated me in learning about the periodic table of elements, that the periodic table of elements stays like it is, meaning gold doesn't morph into lead, doesn't morph into salt, doesn't morph into uranium, right? The elements stay the same. Why? Why does steel act today like it will act 500 years from now? The same kind of steel. Because Jesus Christ holds it all together. Why can we drive under a bridge tomorrow and next year, Lord willing, provide the properties stay the same and erosion hasn't happened? And it'll still stay up because the I beams act consistently along with the rebar and the concrete. It all works together. And it all acts the same way. Jesus Christ makes this all possible, beloved. If we didn't, if we lived in a universe without Him, not only would the universe not exist, but everything would be subject to change, like the teaching of evolution. In fact, if we really bought into evolution, we could, we should conclude this: that since things change all the time, don't drive under a bridge and don't walk into a building because maybe. Today will be the day when things morph into something else on a macro level. Jesus Christ sustains all of creation. He holds it all together. So this is Christ. But Tim Keller, years ago, I heard him say, Let somebody concluded this. He's, Jesus is not someone you ask to be your secretary or your personal assistant or your life coach. Jesus Christ is not just someone you tack on to the side of your life like a like a little buggy next to a motorcycle, a little sidecar, useful in time of need, but generally speaking, irrelevant. If Jesus Christ is who the Holy Spirit says he is, and he is, if Jesus Christ is who Paul says he is and who Jesus himself claims to be, then he's Lord of all. And he's making all creation function. And he's the one who's causing your heart and my heart and my breast to still work at this very moment every second of the day. And when he decides they're not going to work anymore, then we'll be having a funeral. Beloved, that's who Jesus is. He upholds everything. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the one who makes it all happen. He's the only reason that you and I continue to even exist. He's the one who lived for you. He's the one who obeyed the law perfectly. He's the lawgiver himself. The one who fulfilled all righteousness so that we could be declared righteous is himself called the righteous one in Acts 7.52. The one who humbled himself by taking on human flesh in the form of a servant is none other than God in the flesh. And the one who entered into creation in order to save us is himself the creator. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then he reigns over all. He's the reigning ruler, the great king of creation, the ancient of days, and to regard him as anything less as sacrilege, to think of him as anything less as sinful and rebellious, and to treat him as anything less is the most horrid form of desertion and defection ever committed, punishable by death. What an incredible privilege then must belong to those people for whom he has gone to the cross and paid for their sins. What incredible privilege must belong to you and to me, to know him, to know God in him and through him, and to be able to call him our friend, and to have this friend lay down his life for us, because he loves us that much. Beloved, our Savior is just incredible Our Savior, depicted by Paul here in Romans 1, 15-17, is just majestic. He is it. And He makes every human hero, He makes every great nation look like less than a drop in the bucket in comparison to who He is. And you know Him. May our lives just be filled with worship, with joy, with privilege in being able to serve Him. Let's pray.